morning. My name's Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grab a Bible and go to the book of Romans. If you have one of these blue Bibles in front of you, it will be on page 547 in the book of Romans. We're here this morning. You're here. I'm here because at some point we've asked the question that we were supposed to ask. We've all come together asking the same question. Some of you are here this morning, maybe this is the first time you've begun to ask this question and you've come this morning. And the, the question is the same question that comes out of the mouth of the rich young ruler when he meets Jesus. It's the question that the Philippian jailer has after uh, an earthquake where he sees the uh, authority and the power of God and he's talking to Paul. It's the question that uh, everyone asks after Peter's sermon on Pentecost. It's, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. You may have worded it different. You may have thought about it differently, but that's the question. It's what Carl Jung refers to this. Um, he's a, a Swiss psychologist. He refers to this um, religious instinct that humans have this desire, this longing, this uh, searching in them to have religious answers. It's the question that all religions are answering. What does God want from me? If there is a God, what does he expect from me? What am I supposed to do? What, do I, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to, be, to, have in, in, to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And some of you are saying, I'm not, I'm not asking that question. This person brought me here. Well, I will tell you that it is the question you need to have an answer to. That if you actually were able to, to meet God and ask him one question, you may be curious about things like Bigfoot and UFOs or the next winning lotto numbers, but this is the question you actually need answered, is how can I be saved? Because that one has eternal implications. And I'll tell you that the Bible's answer to that, I'm going to give you a short answer and then I'm going to give you a longer answer. You thought maybe it would just be a short answer, but I'm a preacher and that will never happen. <laughs> I'm going to give you a short answer and then I'll give you a longer answer. The short answer is that in order to be saved, you need to be able to stand in front of God who is a judge, who weighs the hearts of humans. You need to be able to stand before God and be righteous. As Leviticus says that we have to be holy as he is holy. Or as Deuteronomy says that we need to be blameless before God. Or as, as um, David puts it in Psalm 24 where he says that we, he who has uh, clean hands and a pure heart. Or as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. Now, if you're like me, like if I was going to take a test, if I was going to uh, get my uh, electrical license and I went in and they said, you know, you got this amount of time and this many questions, there's 50 questions, there's 100 questions. My, my first question I have for them is, how many do I have to get right? Where's, like, where's the cutoff? We talking 50%, 75%? So the, the question that we should have is, how, how holy, how blameless how clean are my hands supposed to be? How pure is my heart? When you say perfect, you meant like 
C-plus range, right? It's like we want to argue that somehow it's graded on a curve. Like, you know, it's like, like it works the way uh, it works when you're running from a bear. If you're ever running from a bear, you actually don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than the other people with you. And that's kind of how we want this to work. It's like, does salvation work like that? Like, if I can just find people who are worse than me, and I'm in the top 50%, is that okay? And when it says blameless, it means blameless. When it says holy, it means holy. When it says perfect, it means perfect. That's the standard. Righteous. This is a, the theological word is that we would need to be justified before God. Meaning that when we came in, we would need to have no sins that we have committed. And we would need to have practical positive righteousness. No sins, no negative righteousness. And we would need positive righteousness. Meaning we have actually done good in the world. So never having sinned and done what we were supposed to. Good luck. Let's pray. <laughs> that's the question. That's the short answer. But there's a longer answer that's more beautiful and more helpful than good luck, let's pray. And it's that question that drove Martin Luther, who we've been studying as we've talked through these five solas of the Reformation, these five uh, theological truths that came out in the Protestant Reformation as the Protestant church broke with the Catholic church that we hold dearly because they come from the scriptures. It's this question that drove Martin Luther to, uh, to the church and ultimately to kind of where we are today. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll start in. God, we ask for your help this morning as we study this. We pray that this truth would be visible, tangible, that we would see its beauty, and that we would accept it and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Martin Luther had this question, how can I be saved? It's why he became a monk. He thought it was the best route to being saved. Uh, we said earlier, lightning struck near him and knocked him over. He yelled, St. Anne, protect me, I'll become a monk. And he did. He becomes a monk, and he's trying to be good enough to be saved. Because what they were telling him is you had to practice penance, you had to practice confession. He would go into the confessional, he would confess, he'd be on his way out, he'd remember more sins, he would go back. He, he was haunted by the reality of his sin. And the truth is, he wasn't crazy. He actually saw himself pretty clearly. That if you could really look into your own heart, you would see depravity. And so he, he was trying to weigh out and carry out, how do I get saved? How do I make myself okay? And he was stuck studying the book of Romans. And we've shown this passage, but this is where he was. He was in Romans 1, and he was reading this over and over again. Romans 1, verse 17. For in it, that's the gospel. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. So in it, the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith for faith, by faith. And he was stuck here. He didn't understand how the righteousness of God was revealed in this way, that God is righteous in this way. And then he began to realize that righteousness of God being revealed is that it's granted to us, that his righteousness is given to us. And his understanding of how you became righteous was that you did it. You worked it out. You repented enough. You did enough good works. And he starts realizing that righteousness is, that it is given from faith, that we receive righteousness from faith and that it's given for faith and that we live by faith. And when he wrapped his head around this, he said it was like the gates of heaven swung open to him. 
that he was saved not by his work, but by faith alone. And that's what we're looking at is this idea of sola fide, which means by faith alone. That we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. That it's God's grace working on our behalf, but that it's faith that is the channel that brings that grace to us. And so he wrote 97 theses addressing this great theological rift between what the Bible says and how we understand the Bible and what the Catholic Church was teaching at that time. He wrote 97 theses on how to study the Bible and understand the Bible. He wrote it on grace and faith. And he said, you know, this is, he was dropping a bomb on the Catholic approach to understanding of, of life and sanctification and faith and how we were saved. He was saying, we've answered this question wrong, the question that we're supposed to get right, we've answered wrong. He wrote 97 theses, which were just his end conclusion points, and he wanted to debate them. He wanted to, to discuss them. He was ready to show his work. He, he dropped this out to basically say, the Catholic Church is wrong. This is how we're saved. And they said, huh. The response was underwhelming. He thought, I've just thrown a hand grenade in here. Everyone's going to care. They didn't really debate a whole lot. Uh, He was winning over some people in in Wittenberg to this idea that we're saved by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then the cell of indulgences happened, and he threw what he did not think was a hand grenade into a situation that turned into a hand grenade, And he was like, you like those 95 theses? I have 97 other ones I'd like to share with you. Here's what happened with the cell of indulgences. Indulgences is this idea, it's a Catholic idea, that when you sin, there are consequences. We're tracking so far, that's true. There are consequences. And they taught that they were time-bound consequences and eternal consequences. Also true. We're on board. Protestants are still nodding along. Yes, There are eternal consequences of sin. There are time-bound consequences. They said that there are time-bound consequences that are paid out here on earth. True. We agree with that. Like if there are just consequences to sin. If you punch someone in the nose, there are consequences. Immediate consequences to their face and then follow-up consequences. Maybe they punch you back. Maybe they call the police. Maybe the job interview didn't go so well. I don't know. There are consequences. But they taught that those consequences weren't the natural result of the way God designed the world, but that God would actually keep record of what you have done and dull consequences back out to you to make you pay it back off. And that he would not only do that here, but he would also do it in purgatory. As soon as they make this argument, we back out. God isn't paying you back specifically to make you pay off your debt. It's just the natural way that there are consequences to sin. It's the way God designed the world. And there is no purgatory where you pay off mid-level sins that didn't send you to hell, but that you have to be there for a certain amount of time. But they taught this. And so they taught that what you could do was an indulgence. You could say a certain number of prayers. You could go on a pilgrimage. You could do good acts. And what that would do is put good back into the world. You brought bad into the world. You could put good back into the world. And as you put good back into the world, God would remove some of the consequences he was going to give you, either here or in purgatory. And they taught you could go on pilgrimages. Then at one point they started saying, well, you could give to like help good causes. Like there was a, church, uh, a hospital, you could help pay for that. And then they were like, well, you know what? We're actually working on a church building. And so in uh, Rouen, France, they have a, a part of a church building, a cathedral called the Butter Tower, because during Lent, you weren't allowed to eat butter or dairy, but they started letting you pay a little money, and they'd give you like a butter ticket 
And that's where we, the way we use the word, like I'm going to indulge in some ice cream, that's where they, that gets tied to that, this indulgence of you paid some money, we're going to build our tower, you can, you can have some butter. Then enter the archbishop of Mainz. He paid a lot of money to become the archbishop because it was a very powerful position. The church wasn't just the church, it was also in charge of politics, so he paid a lot of money to become the Archbishop of Mainz. He was now in a very powerful position, but he wanted to recoup some of his money, and Pope Leo X wanted to finish St. Peter's Basilica and make it a lot nicer, and so they hatched a plan. We're just going to sell indulgences for cash and split the profits. And so they hired a guy named Tetzel to begin to be their indulgence preacher, and he's traveling around Germany preaching. And he's preaching, basically, these are indulgences that if you pay us a certain amount of money, we'll give it to you. And if you keep it, if it's for you, you'll, you won't have to go to purgatory. And if you pay it on behalf of someone else, we'll let them out of purgatory right now. That's what he was teaching. Um, and he had, he, he was like a, he was hawking these things. He was a salesman. He had different phrases he used. He said, if you buy one of these, you're cleaner than when you come out of baptism. If you buy one of these, you're cleaner than Adam before the fall. That the cross on the indulgence has as much power as the cross of Christ. But the one he's most famous for is as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And I was like, man, that's catchy. It rhymes, you know it's true. But I was like, well, you know it rhymes in English. He was saying this in German. So was it as catchy? I looked it up. And I haven't been as excited about anything in a while. It's amazing in German. It still rhymes. If you don't speak German, I'm about to crush this. <laughs> if you do speak German, I'm sorry if I say something offensive. But this is the phrase in German. So bald das Geld im Kasten klingt, Deisel in den Himmel springt. Clinked and sprinked. I was so pumped when I saw this. I think we should put more T's at the end of words. So he has this phrase that he's saying, this is how you, this is what happens if you'll buy one of these. This is how salvation works. And I was so excited about this that we've come up with some of our own. When the money goes in the slot, your sins are forgiven on the spot. If the check goes in the wall, there's no more sin on y'all. <laughs> Set up recurring gifts online and then your soul will be just fine. <laughs> you better have a Venmo if you want to send Mo. <laughs> so proud of those. Anyway, it would be absolutely crazy if we actually taught that. That if we were like, you know, we need to place our faith in Jesus, he's the one who redeems us, or there's a cash option. But that's what they were doing. And so Martin Luther writes 95 theses about this. His 97 weren't a big hit, but he was like, I, this is ridiculous as well. So he's doing the same thing that he did. He's not thinking this will blow up. He's just trying to say this is wrong. Some of the arguments he makes are, first of all, he says the Pope is in charge of Pope things, not purgatory. If the Pope tells you that you have to pay some kind of penance, then the Pope can give you an indulgence to not have to pay that penance. He's in charge of the churches doling out and removing of things. He says, but God's in charge of purgatory. Later, he decides there is no purgatory as he continues to read his Bible. But at this point, he's not there. So he says, God's in charge of purgatory. He says, the Pope can't get you out of purgatory. Secondly, if the Pope could get you out of purgatory, he should just be doing this because he loves people, N not for cash. 
He should pay out of his own pocket if it costs money. He should pay his own money to get people out of purgatory if he has that power. He should want to sell St. Peter's Basilica to get people out of purgatory. This is what he writes. This one was not well received by the Pope. This one makes it to him. He attacked the Pope. He attacked his wallet. And it becomes a big thing. And he was like, you like those 95 theses? I got 97 more <laughs> on something that I think is way more important. So as soon as he got some... Uh, people started hearing him and reading this. He started pressing this idea of there's salvation by grace through faith. And this is how it comes to us. It blows up over this idea of indulgences, which affects this, but it wasn't his primary argument he was trying to make. He's more famous for the 95, but his 97 matter more because it's a theological argument. So he comes through and he says, this is how it works. And all we're going to do now is I'm going to show you in the book of Romans where this is. And we're going to walk through that we are saved by faith alone. We are not saved by our works. So in Romans chapter 3, turn to chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 9. And we're going to move our way through Romans. I'll show you some passages in Galatians. But we're going to work our way through Romans. First thing you need to know to understand how salvation works, to answer this question, what must I do to be saved? We're supposed to be righteous. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be blameless. That's the standard, perfection. Out the gate, you need to understand something. You aren't. Romans 3, Paul says this. He's talking about the law, meaning the ways that we would behave, that God has told the, the Old Testament uh, Jewish people, that this is the law on how you would be holy, is how you'd be blameless. And he starts talking about them having this. And he's already making the argument that everybody has sinned. He says, what advantage has the Jew, meaning the people who were given the law? Or what is the value of circumcision, meaning this covenant that was made with them? Sorry, verse 9. I'm, way, I'm up at the top of verse, uh, chapter 3. He's making this argument as he goes through. Then he says, what then? Are Jews any better off? Verse 9. No, not at all. He's saying that this was given to him and it was a blessing, but it ultimately doesn't make them better off when it comes to salvation. The law does not do this. He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You're like, no one does good, maybe I do, not even one. What he's saying is that, the, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, but that the standard of righteousness is not met by anybody. That you're supposed to add high-quality good into the world. You're supposed to have positive righteousness, and you're supposed to not sin. And what we have done is we have not done this, not done what we were supposed to, and we have done what we weren't supposed to. We have sinned. That's us. If it's your first time hearing that, I'll let that sink in for a second. You're, you're a sinner before God. You have lied. You have stolen. You have uh, been covetous. You've messed up relationships. One of the best examples of this is that to show how wicked we are is that most of the time the worst things we do are the people that we would say we love the most, the people we're closest to, that we consistently harm people that we're around, that you have not, you're not a, one of the good ones. So we fall short. This is what he says in verse 20, 22 and 23 later on. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that none of us make it. 
Secondly, so we've all sinned. Secondly, we need to understand, this is verse 19, that we are all accountable to God. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That not only are we in our sin, but we are accountable to God. That he, as God, as creator, as ruler of the world, holds us to account. And we don't have anything. We don't have anything to say. He says every mouth may be stopped. This is what Job says when he talks about standing before God. He says that who, who could stand before God? He would accuse you on a thousand fronts and you would have no response for any of them. That if you actually went in front of God, he'd have a thousand things that he could say, you've lusted, you've lied, you've tried to make yourself seem better than you were. Every time you did something good, every time you did something that would be counted as good, you walked around with pride in your heart, strutting as if you were better than everyone around you. You couldn't even do something good without bringing your sin along. And we would have nothing to say. It'd be like he had it on tape. He had it on record. He showed it to us. We'd have no argument to make. And that's what he says. The law just shuts us up because it holds us accountable and there's nothing we can do about it. The third thing you need to understand is that no amount of work can fix this. So when we're called to be righteous, there's no amount of penance that you can pay, no amount of debt that you can work off, no amount of goodness that you can add back into the world, no amount of, okay, I've been bad, I've messed up, I've hurt people, but now I'm going to get it together. Now I'm going to do it right. That doesn't work. He says, for by works of the law, this is verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if you said, well, what do you want me to do? I'll just give me the list and I'll do it. He says, that will never make you justified. You'll never be able to stand before him by works of the law and have done practical righteousness and not sin. No human being. If you happen to be a part of the Illuminati and you're like a lizard person, you might can sneak in. But everybody else, all the human beings will not be justified in his sight. This is what Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So I want to talk to two people real quick that I think often are trying to rely on works of the law. I want to talk to good old boy Southern Christianity. What does God want from me? Wants me to be an upstanding citizen. Wants me to do what's right. Okay? True, he does want those things for you. That will not save you. Because if you don't uphold every part of the law, you're cursed. There is no just be in the middle of the pack, don't make things worse, and we'll be all right. It's not how it works. It says, all who rely on works of the law. For you to say, well, I'm just going to be good enough. I'm just going to kind of do what I'm supposed to. I'm going to be a part of a church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pay my taxes and pay my tithe. And that's what you're relying on. This is what you're going to present to him. This is your resume you're building. You are under a curse. It will not work. And some of you are shooting for middle of the pack, and some of you go, that's ridiculous. You've got to be in the top 10%. So let's talk to Church ladies, if we're going to give a hard time to good old boys, let's talk to church ladies. 
if you think that, no, it's, it's, not, it's not just be kind of good, it's be really good. It's get a perfect attendance pin to, to Sunday school. It's know your Bible backward and forward and be able to quote it at people. It's be disgusted with sinners. My wife works at a bank, and periodically they'd have situations where things were going wrong. And I don't know if y'all know this about people, but they get upset during customer service incidences. And they seem to crank that up if it involves their money. But there was Thomas she was telling me there was a lady they work with who's hard to work with, and every time something happened, she was super frustrated. And when she would argue with them, she would cite that she was a Sunday school teacher. And how dare they? And my wife would be like, what? What? First of all, this is a bank. We don't care about your Sunday school teaching. <laughs> Second of all, what the heck even is that? It's like this... But that idea of, I'm one of the good ones, you're cursed if you're trying to rely on the works of the law. If you have a resume that you're going to present to God, it will not work. It's what Galatians 2.21 says. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could do it on your own, if there was one person, it says no, not one, but if there was one person who was righteous on their own, then all God would have to say is, see, you could do it. This person, the rest of y'all, if we could do it, if there was a way to attain it from the law, why did Christ come? Why did he die? We don't have an answer for that. Paul says it's for no purpose. Christ doesn't have to die. He would just have to teach us things. He would just come back in. He would reform it a little bit. He'd tweak it. He'd say, y'all aren't doing this part right, but if you try really hard, you can. So Jesus comes, this is verse 21 in Romans. But now, the righteousness of God, that's that word again, has been manifested, means showed up, apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he says the law and the prophets were pointing us in this direction, but it's not the law that brought God's righteousness to us. It says it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's that word. That's that theological word, that thing that we need to be in front of God, justified. By his grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right. That's beautiful. That we're justified, that thing that we need, we're made right before God by his grace as a gift. A gift meaning we didn't do it, he gives it to us. It's to be received, you look at the bottom, received by faith. That's what we do. We receive a gift by faith, by trusting Jesus. He's the one who does redemption and propitiation. Let me tell you what those words mean. Redemption is the idea that he buys us out of slavery. That he pays the price for us. So, to stand before God, you need no sin and positive righteousness. Unfortunately, what you have is sin and no positive righteousness. 
okay? You're, you're in the wrong line with the wrong ticket, at the wrong show, at the wrong time. You got nothing. Jesus has no sin and positive righteousness. So Jesus redeems and propitiates, meaning that he comes in and he swaps places with us. He pays the debt. He says, I'll take your sin. I'll give you my righteousness. It's redemption. Then he goes to, to God and he says, I will, here's their sin. I'll pay for it. That's propitiation, that he absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. If he had sinned, he wouldn't be able to do anything for us. If he hadn't fulfilled the law on our behalf, he wouldn't be able to do anything for us. He never sinned and he fulfilled the law. We never fulfilled the law, but we have sinned and he swaps places with us. Jesus Christ died for a purpose. And it was to redeem sinners and to propitiate our sin before God. There's this idea of a champion. I always found it really intriguing. uh, and, And it's just an interesting thing that would happen in history. When people would go to fight, whole armies would line up. But then at times they would say, rather than us just our army fighting your army, just send forth your champion. Send out the biggest, baddest dude you got, and we'll send out the biggest, baddest dude we have, and they'll fight on our behalf. This actually happens in the book of 1 Samuel. That's what Goliath was. He was the champion of the Philistines. He comes out and says, I'm going to fight on behalf of us. He actually says, if I win, y'all will serve us. But if you win, if your champion wins... We'll serve you. The whole nations, the whole armies, everything was hanging in the balance on one on one fight. That's what faith in Jesus is. He's not our commander that coaches us up on how to fight well, He's our champion. We stand back, it's all in His hands. If He wins, we win. If He secures the victory, we have the victory. If he rescues, if he redeems, if he accomplishes it, if he rises, we rise. If he doesn't, we don't. But it's all been pushed onto him. That we trust Jesus to be the one who accomplishes this, Jesus to be the one who's righteous for us, Jesus to be the one who pays off our sin debt. That it's not, I have to feel bad enough, I have to pay penance to pay off my debt, or that I have to be good enough. It's none of that, that we trust Jesus. We have faith in Jesus, and we are saved by faith. Fifth thing we need to see is that faith is not a work. It's actually the opposite of work. It's anti-work. It's not the one work that we do. It's the quitting of our work, effective immediately. Resignation, effective immediately. Here's what he says, verse 27. And I love that he poses this as a question. Then what becomes of our boasting? Like what the question is, okay, cool. Jesus saves me by grace through faith. It's a gift. What do I get to brag about? What happens with me telling everyone I'm awesome? And he says, it is excluded. Which means you don't you don't get to. There is no boasting in this system. You aren't awesome. Did you read the first part of my letter? It's excluded. You you did not do this. That's what he's saying, that there is no boasting. And this helps us understand that this isn't a work. He says, by what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Meaning, if you did it, then you can strut. Like, if you watch David and Goliath go forward, 
And we were, we were here for 40 days, super scared. Nobody wanted to fight the Goliath. And then we're like, here's a child with a rock. Let's see what he can do. We send him for it. All our hopes in him. We're trusting in this because he he's the only one brave enough to go do it. He's going to go handle it. Seems meek. Seems like it's not going to work, but it does. That ultimately he's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is. But we're the ones all scared and sitting back. And as soon as he kills Goliath, if I jumped in the back and yelled, I'm awesome! Chad Phillips! You'd be like, what is wrong with you? You'd be like, we won. It's like, yeah, but Dave, Dave, wait, what? That's what he's saying. Like, there's no boasting here because we didn't do any work. It's excluded. This is what Calvin says in his Institutes. He was a French performer in Geneva. It says, because of the majority of people, because the majority of people imagine a righteousness of faith mixed with works, meaning you need both. You got to bring your good works to the table. You need to have faith in Jesus. Let us also show the righteousness of faith is so different from that of works that if one is established, the other is overturned. One's excluding the other. You can have one or the other. You can stand before God on your own merit, or you can stand before God on Christ's merit. It's up to you. But you don't get both. You either show up with Christ's record of righteousness, which I would heavily suggest to you, or you show up with your record of righteousness. But you don't get both. That's what he says. What becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. By law of faith. And this is good news. I want to jump to Romans 4 4. So I love this passage. Now, to the one who works, he's still carrying this idea out, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work for 40 hours, you went to pick up your paycheck, and as they went to hand it to you, you reached out and they pulled back and say, Ah, say thank you. Like, fool. You tell me thank you. You owe me this. That's his point. He's like, if, you, if, it's a wage, if it's a wage that you earned, it's your due. We can't hold it back from you. You, you deserve it. But then he says this, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's us. We don't work. We didn't show up with something to, to present. And we're ungodly. But Jesus justifies the ungodly. If you're here and you're going, I'm so messed up. I gotta get back in church. I gotta get it together. I gotta start, I gotta start reading my Bible. I, I've messed everything up in my life. I've messed up all my relationships. I've, I just gotta, I gotta clean this up. I gotta get this straightened out. You won't. But Jesus can. He justifies the ungodly because he's good. That's why it's a gracious gift. This is beautiful, wonderful news. That faith is counted as righteousness. And faith is us just saying, I trust that Jesus has accomplished this for me. And that makes us genuinely, truly, eternally righteous because we stand in Christ not ourselves. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, as we do that, Christians are supposed to work. We have good works, 
but good works do not secure salvation for us. They do not earn anything for us. It's just the appropriate response to what Jesus has done for us. That's what uh, Martin Luther, I'm going to end with two quotes from him. He says, God does not need our good works. They don't present to him. They don't save us. He says, but your neighbor does. And that's God, we're saved by grace through faith for good works that he works in us, that he planned beforehand. We're told that in Ephesians, but they don't redeem us. So that if you look at a Christian, Christians are supposed to have works. They're supposed to look like believers. John tells us that. James tells us that. Paul tells us that. Christ tells us that. But we look like believers because we are We look like Christ because we've been made like Christ through the work of Christ. So you don't bring good works to him for your redemption. You come to Jesus. The only thing that you can bring is your sin that makes your salvation necessary. That's all you have. I need clean clean hands and I need a pure heart. But I have dirty hands and a wicked heart. And I get Christ. So this is what Luther says. He says it's It is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Hence, one who is not yet nothing, out of him God cannot make anything. So if you think you're something, if you have good works that you're going to present to God, you'll stand in that, but God will not make you new because you still think you're presenting something to him that has earned you something. He says, therefore, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life only to the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched. But he does have mercy on those who are wretched. He does justify the ungodly. And so we get together and we praise his name because he saves us through his goodness and his glory on our behalf. The band's going to come back up. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you do not have a good answer to the question of what does God want from me, or if you've answered the question with he wants me to be good, you are under a curse. You are not righteous. You are accountable to God. And you will pay the due penalty of your sin. And it would be unloving to tell you anything else. It would be unloving to stand up here and say, you'll be okay, it'll be fine. It will not. If you walk towards Christ with your resume that screams the glory of your own name, you will not be welcomed into heaven. You will not be welcomed into his presence. You will not be given glory before his face. You will pay the penalty of your sin. But Jesus Christ redeems the ungodly He justifies us before God. He pays the penalty of our sin. And all you need to do is bring your sin to him and say, this is all the stuff that should disqualify me. All I can bring to you is all the things that would keep me out. And I can hand them over to Christ and I can let him take them to the cross for me. And when he rises, I can rise with him. 
because he gives me his righteousness. And then when you stand before God and he brings to you a thousand accusations, you can say they were all paid by Christ and I am clothed in the righteousness of your son and we are made righteous in his son and we are justified by God. And if someone says, well, you're ungodly, it's like, yes and amen, that's who Jesus justifies. I'm wretched and so I get a glorious, gracious savior. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you're somehow trying to smuggle works back in because we have little legalist hearts, that you're somehow falling short and you hadn't done enough and you aren't good enough and you're overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, would you stop and take a deep breath and praise Jesus for justifying the ungodly? If you can look at yourself right now and say, I've been following Jesus for so long and I feel so ungodly, praise Christ that he justifies the ungodly that he redeems, that he propitiates. You say, I deserve so much wrath for my wickedness. Yes. And Christ paid it out on the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. And we rise with him because he rises, not because we're good, not because after he saved us, we got together and we became good people, but because he redeems and he makes new and he gets the glory and the praise forever. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, trust him. Come to him now and say, I, I need you to save me. And he will. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, celebrate that he saves sinners like us. And let's sing praises to his name.